I was blessed to have Heidi lead us in worship this morning. Hopefully you were as well. But what you need to know is that uh, Heidi and her husband, Rich, are what Tara and I would consider, consider mentors in our life. They have been around pastoral ministry for a while, and, um, but more than the wisdom they have to share with us, I think it's the comfort of friendship and, and just kind of partnering in, in life and ministry together, and they've been a great comfort to us. So um, I'm, I'm even more blessed than, than we all have been in uh, being led here this morning in worship, so I'm very thankful that she's here this morning uh, with us. Now, um, before we spend some time in God's Word, uh, I do want to invite, oh good, Paul and Nina and, and uh, Elias up here because, uh, I don't know if this is news to you, but... Um, uh, Nina is pregnant. <laughs> Surprise! Yeah, she just told me this morning. I don't. I, I don't. The things happen when you're away on sabbatical. It's crazy. Um, but uh, she's going to have a baby any day now, and that means that she and Paul are going to be at home. Uh, working with big brother Elias to welcome another uh, member into their family. And uh, we're going to be blessed by more faces like Heidi's this morning to help lead in worship as she steps away for a little while. She'll come back and be with us, and we're excited to have her here. What's up, buddy? Can I have some knuckles? Thanks, bud. Uh, but what we want to do is we want to pray for them as a family as they uh, prepare to kind of enter into this, this new chapter. Uh, Paul, we got your back, brother. So if you need anything, just give us a call. But, uh, and then, of course, we're praying. <laughs> you too. Yes, are you too. <laughs> I mean, he's got, he's got your back. We've got his back. So that we're kind of like, help me out here, guys. Anyway. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Let me pray for them. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Camargi family. Lord, we thank you for the work you're doing in them and through them and, and the ways you're growing and expanding their family. Lord, we know that uh, it is in and through families like theirs that your kingdom grows and expands. The, the love of God is seen and witnessed as they walk by faith. Uh, Lord, we just pray that um, as, as they get ready to uh, welcome their child into the world, that you would provide health and safety, that everything would go smoothly. Uh, and that the recovery would go quickly as well, so Lord, that they might snuggle their little one and bask in the glow of the love that you have given them in this new life. So Lord, watch over them, keep them, shepherd them, strengthen them, give them rest and peace, and Lord, we are excited to celebrate with this family uh, as you bless them with this new life. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys. Thanks. Yeah, so guys, now you can say, oh, you're pregnant? And they're like, you're safe. Like, just guys get nervous. Like, we, we can't, never mind. <laughs> We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up, uh, and, and we're going to be exploring the gospel of Jesus through the, uh, according to, to Mark. Now, the last couple of weeks, we have been opening our time in the scriptures by considering Jesus' invitation to follow him, right? The, the, the message of the Bible, the message of the life of Jesus is not just this biography that we find interesting and important and, and, and want to study and under, uh, understand. It's an invitation to follow Jesus. And specifically, we've come into the fall having thought about Paul's challenge to the believers in Philippi to, to join with him in pressing on after Christ, 
Now, the, the Greek word he uses in, in the passage in his letter is dioko, and it was the word used to describe also his, his persecution and his attack on followers of Jesus, right? When, when, he would, uh, when he would call people to stone Stephen or, or to imprison believers and, and, and chase them to various villages and cities and, and, and persecute them for following Jesus, he used this word dioko to describe what he was doing. And it's the same word he uses to describe pressing on after, pursuing, seeking Jesus, right? This is not, this is not just a, a mental exercise for him. This is a, the, 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 the discipline of his heart. It was a matter of his will, his desire to, to persistently follow after him. And church, in this season of renewal that God is working on in us, in our hearts and in our lives, is, is this, this invitation, I believe, that Jesus wants to, to form in us more and better followers after him, to, to press on with Paul after Jesus, to, 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 to seek after him, not to necessarily obey him better, but to desire him more deeply. Think about the desires of your heart for a moment, the desires of your life. There are lots of things that we desire, right? In fact, there are so many things we desire that that idea of desire and, and longing kind of gets watered down, I think, a little bit. But what Jesus wants for us in this new season of life for us is to, to form in us more and better followers who press on after him. This idea, though, of being a follower, I think, creates a little bit of confusion for some of us. I'm reading this great book right now called The Call to Follow, hearing Jesus in a culture point about how being a follower is not what many of us long to or desire or aspire to be, right? We, we don't wake up in the morning with aspirations of, of being a great follower at work or, or being a great follower in our marriages or, or, or in our families. In fact, I would imagine when I use the word follower— Outside the context of, of people who grew up in the church and have followed Jesus, it, it, if I mention the word follower, the, the sort of words come to mind for you like weak or, or, or lemming or passive or no freedom at all. But that's not what Jesus has in mind for his followers. See, as Paul shows us, being a follower is, is pressing on after Jesus. Being a follower is seeking and desiring him in the way because we believe his way truly is good and right and beneficial. In the book, the authors make the point that leadership and being a follower, they, they go hand in hand. They're a joint venture. It's not one of authority over one of submissiveness. It, it's a partnership. It's, a, it's an ongoing partnership that we get to share with Jesus. See, church, we're not deaf and dumb, blind sheep. We have skin in the game when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. We care about where we're going because we know, we believe that Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we claim to be followers, when we desire to be more and better followers of Jesus, we believe that God has something very special in mind for us in this life. And so it's my hope and belief that, that studying the gospel of Mark this year together will help us to understand who it is that we're following, who this Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God is, 
and then understand how to follow him more, more passionately, more persistently, how to stay the path with him when things get tough, how, how to hold on to that passion to know him fully and deeply and, and to desire to, to follow after him more passionately. So we're going to continue in the book of Mark. We're going to pick up partway through the first chapter, verses 9 through 13 together. If you're reading from the, the Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 836, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 9 to 13 for us from the passage. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. This is what God's word says. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that, that you have spoken and revealed yourself to us. Lord, I, I pray on our behalf that, that, that you would make us more and better followers of Christ, that, that, you would, that you would allow this passion, the desire for you and you alone to, to, to foster and grow and expand in our hearts and minds, that it might shape and inform every other area of our lives. And Lord, may it start here with knowing Jesus, knowing him more fully and clearly and, and desiring him more dearly, Lord. So have your way in us. May your Holy Spirit work in us, enliven this, your word to us, transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as, I mean, it's only a handful of verses, but I'd like us to look at these verses a little bit backwards, and hopefully by the end it'll be clear why I'm having us look at these verses this way. But I want us to start by looking at Jesus' temptation, right? There's two key events that are going on here. Just before Jesus' public ministry go, begins here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' baptism and his temptation happen. And these two events, I believe, are connected. The temptation is where I want us to start. Last week, when, when uh, we were studying the verses together, we, we learned that the people of God expected good things to happen in the wilderness, right? The wilderness where, was where Isaiah the prophet said that God would declare, comfort, comfort my people. In other words, this was the place where God was going to declare the beginning of the end of their exile from God. And so their expectation was, hey, the wilderness is a, a place of good things to come, but it was also a place where they knew that God would test and try the faith of his people. And so John's ministry of baptism and preaching and introducing Jesus in the wilderness signaled that God was fulfilling his plan of redemption, right? There he is in the wilderness preaching alongside the Jordan River, signaling good things, comfort, comfort my people, and then Jesus by the Holy Spirit is driven out into the wilderness where for 40 days and 40 nights he's, he fasts and is tempted by Satan. So if you trace the, the theme of wilderness throughout the Bible, you, you see a repeating theme where, where God tests and tries the faith of his people. Abraham 
was told to do what? To leave his father and his household and the land which he knew and go to another place that God would one day show him. But that place led, went through the wilderness, right? And it was in that wilderness that God develops a relationship with Abraham where Abraham could be credited as, uh, in faith as being righteous. But you better believe that faith was developed in the trials of the wilderness that God led Abraham through. Israel was rescued from slavery. They spent 400 years enslaved in Egypt and then God rescues them out of slavery. And what does he do? Does he plop them down in the promised land? No. For 40 years, he leads them through the wilderness where they are tested and tried. Where God wants to prepare and equip and form in them a heart that trusts him, that's faithful to him, that will, will take him at his word and do what he says because they believe God loves them and has the best in store for them. See, here in our passage, Mark doesn't tell us much, just that, that Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, where he was tempted by Satan. But what we need to understand is that the Father allowed Jesus to be tested in the wilderness for a reason. Maybe you saw that when you were reading through the text, and it says that the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. The Father allows Jesus to be tempted and, and tested for a reason. But see, I, I don't think that the reason that Jesus being tested in the wilderness is a, so that we would have an example, right? I, I don't think Jesus, this passage, this teaching on, on Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is there so that Dan would know how to go through temptation when he faced temptation. I, I'm, I'm not Jesus, Right? Like, I don't have the ability or the power or the authority to protect myself if I throw myself off the roof of the temple. Like, these temptations are somewhat unique to Jesus. And so I don't think that, that, that Jesus' testing in the wilderness is there primarily to, to give us an example about how we, too, can endure temptation and trial. No, Jesus' testing is included in the Bible to show us that where we fail in being faithful— Jesus is successful and is faithful. See, Mark doesn't necessarily tell us the nature of testing, but we, we do know from reading the other Gospels what, what sort of temptations Satan uh, brings upon Jesus, right? Sa Satan is literally tempting Jesus to abandon his identity as the Son of God. To, to, to forego being the Son of God and instead to kind of wield this power for his own purposes, these are, the, the, there are, these are temptations that, that, that mankind has failed to be faithful in time and time again. Whether it was Moses striking the rock in the wilderness when, when Israel was complaining about being thirsty, or, or, or Israel as a nation complaining about not having enough food. Pause real quickly. You know, when Israel was led out into the wilderness... They, they go out into the wilderness, and, and, and what happens after three days in the wilderness? text tells us they get hungry and start complaining. 400 years they spend in slavery. 400 years they're fed slop and, 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 and kind of work to the bone. God miraculously leads them out of slavery. He protects them from the Egyptians that are coming after them. And three days later, they completely forget what God has done. And they start complaining. 
See, I, I think what we see there is Israel is failing to take God at his word, that God's going to provide for them and care for them, that, that, that God is faithful. And this is not just Israel's failure, by the way. I'm not pointing fingers at these examples or these, these stories from history of where they failed, but I wouldn't. Time and time again, whether, it's the, whether it was Moses or the Israelites or, or whoever, fill in the blank, we fail to trust God and take him at his word when our circumstances get a little tough. So I think if I could characterize mankind, it would be that mankind is a broken record of forgetting God's faithfulness and, and, and failing to be faithful toward him as a result. I mean, this, this broken record goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, right? You, you know that story, right? When God creates, he creates everything they could possibly want or need in the garden. One thing they're told not to eat of, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Everything else, all they could want, all they could need is there and available to them. But do you remember what happens when Satan comes along to tempt them? He tries to get them to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt that God loves them, to, to, to not trust in God's word. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He's planting the seed of doubt that, that you know what, do you realize? God's withholding goodness from you. He's, there's something there that, you, that he's not letting you have. And so... And so this, the, the nature of Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was, was just like Adam and Eve. But where Adam and Eve failed to trust in God, Jesus was faithful. When, when, when Israel failed the test of remaining faithful to God time and time again throughout the wilderness, Jesus was successful. In fact, Every response that Jesus gave to each of the temptations that Satan puts in front of him was a faithful response, right? If we look in the other gospels, the first time Satan tempted Jesus was when he was hungry, right? And, and, and he says, hey, you know, Jesus, use the power the Father has given you, not for the Father's purposes, but, but for yourself, for your own power. Turn these stones into bread and eat them, right? Jesus' reply Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Dan's translation, I will trust and obey my father. The second time Satan tries to, to, to make Jesus doubt who was the son of God and to test whether the father would protect, protect him, again, Jesus replied in faith saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Dan's translation, I will trust and obey my father. The, the third and final time that Satan tempted Jesus was to offer him power and prestige, to offer him kingdoms of this world if he would only bow to, G, to Satan and worship him. Again, Jesus replied in faith saying, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Dan's translation, I will trust and obey my father and my father only. See, Adam and Eve failed as a faithful representative of mankind. As representatives of you and I, they went before us 
and they failed in being faithful and trusting God and trust and taking him at his word. But so didn't Moses. So didn't the long list of judges. You, you look at the, the stories of the judges in the book of Judges, and, and you see how God calls upon them to rescue the people of Israel, but you also see their failures and their brokenness and their inability to trust God completely. It's the same with the kings and, and the people of Israel as a whole. But Jesus, in contrast to all of these people, in contrast to all these groups of people, is tested and proven in the wilderness to, to cling to God, to trust in him, to be faithful even when, when, his faith, when his faith is being tested. I will trust and obey my father and my father alone. So my question for us and why does it matter that Jesus comes, uh, comes as a faithful representative of mankind? We've talked about how he's God's anointed king. We, we've talked about how it, he, he's, he's God's chosen Messiah, but as the son of God, he's also a faithful representative of mankind there on our behalf. And so why does it matter that Jesus comes as a faithful representative of mankind and the true son of God? Well, to answer this, I'd like us to think about Mark's recording of when John baptized Jesus. In a very matter-of-fact way, Mark tells us that John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. Just, this is what happened. But, but why does Jesus have to be baptized? I mean, if you remember when we talked about John's baptism, John's baptism was, was a baptism in water, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a way to preach and proclaim to people to repent of their sins, to come back to God, and to commit to following after him. And their baptism was a symbol that signified their commitment to follow after God, to, to, to walk with him, right? But, but why would Jesus, this, the, the son of God who knew no sin, what would he have to repent of? Why, why, is, why would Jesus have any need to be baptized? Well, see, Mark doesn't necessarily record the exchange, but Matthew's gospel does, because this was exactly John the Baptist's question. Why do you have need of being baptized? Now, listen to, to uh, Jesus' response to John's question in Matthew 3.15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, let it, let it be so that I'm baptized now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, John may not have realized it at the time or seen it, but Jesus' baptism plays an important role in God's plan of redemption and bringing about God's righteousness. Jesus says this is, this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is, this is a big part of God's plan here. This is not, hey, uh, this is just kind of fix what's happened in the last 50, 100 years. This is part of God's plan to fulfill all righteousness. See, the reality of the world we live in is that it's filled with unrighteousness. It's filled with sadness and grief, worry, insecurity, hatred, selfishness, greed. And that, that's just my heart, right? I mean, the world is filled with this sort of unrighteousness. And the true story behind this reality is that, that, that we made this world this way. We're to blame. Right? Like if we, I think that 
it's not uncommon that we think that we're good people. But I think if we actually sat with things for a little while and dug a little bit deeper and looked deeper into our hearts, forget our neighbor's hearts, but look deeper into our own, our own hearts, I think we could find ways that we've contributed to the brokenness of our world, the unrighteousness that's going on in this world. It's very easy to find someone who's worse off than we are, but that's not where we start. We gotta start with examining how we've contributed to the brokenness and the unrighteousness of this world. See, we turned away from God's loving order and his design for his creation. We've turned away from God's word. We've failed that test of faithfulness in the wilderness. We, we, we somehow trusted, that, trusted Satan that, that God was withholding goodness from us. That, that there's more to this life outside of our relationship with God. That, that if we just consider that, 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 that there's something away from God that we can discover or see that will truly make us happy, we believe that lie and allowed the unrighteousness to seep into not just our own lives, but into this world. So it's important for us to recognize that in identifying with us in John's baptism of repentance, Jesus was stepping into creation to do what we could not do. He was stepping up as a representative of mankind. He was a greater Moses, a greater King David. He, he was greater the, uh, son of God. The, the Bible actually refers to Israel when, when Israel's enslaved in Egypt and, and God is telling Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. He refers to Israel as this, his own son, right? Jesus is a better son of God than even the people of God were. Because he's faithful. And so he steps into this role as a representative of mankind who remains faithful to the Father even when tested. Translation, he's fixing what was broken, church. He's fulfilling faithfulness in his relationship with the Father. And all of this on our behalf, as our representative, we benefit from the fruit of his ministry, of his purpose and passion and faithfulness to the Father. We reap the reward of his righteousness. And all this so that we might become the righteousness of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul puts it like this. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. God made him as a representative of mankind to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, us, Because he's our representative in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' baptism, which was proved out in his test in the wilderness, secures for him the role of being the representative of mankind who is faithful to the Father through it all so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, church, you're righteous not because you obey God or, or know the right doctrines of the faith about God, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's where our righteousness comes in. The, the anti-gospel is that we caused everything sad in this world to be the way it is. We kind of went over that, right? We caused the, the, the sickness and sadness and grief and pain and, and, and wickedness and darkness to be the way it is. That's the anti-gospel. But the good news about Jesus 
as witnessed in his baptism, is that in fulfilling all righteousness, he's about to make everything sad become untrue. I don't know if, you, if there's any Lord of the Rings fans in here, J.R.R. Tolkien, but, but that's a line from, from the Lord of the Rings. Well, there's a scene in, in Lord of the Rings, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is a movie about these two hobbits that, that find this ancient ring of power. It's an evil, wicked ring that allows the evil Lord Sauron to control the minds and hearts of the people that wear the ring. And these two little hobbits find this ring, and they're on a journey to take it to the, to, to, to the, the volcanic pit of the Mount, Mount Doom where it could be destroyed, right? But in the process of this journey, this adventure that they're on to destroy the evil wickedness, they, 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 they endure great sacrifice, right? They leave the comforts of their home. Their, their life is always in jeopardy. They, they witness even some of their good friends dying, or so they believe dying, like, like the wizard Gandalf, right? There's, there's this great, it's, it's a... Um, it's a, it's a made-up story, but, but in this story, after they destroy the ring, Frodo Baggins, one of the hobbits, and his good friend Samwise Gamgee, they, they, they destroy the ring, and then they, they essentially pass out from exhaustion, right? And, and, and when they wake up, Sam wakes up in this room, it's it, it like uh, covered in, in like basking in the glow of this whiteness of this room. They're in this comfortable bed, and he hears the voice of his friend Gandalf. And, and, and he says this. Well, let me read Token's words, actually, because it's, it's a beautiful scene. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth. And for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? See, the, the, what's happening here in the story, I can't, I can't uh, do it justice, but the idea is that in this moment where all hope is lost, the end was there, and, and then these two hobbits wake up in this peaceful place, and, and they, they think they've almost woken up in this new world where, where everything sad has now become untrue. There's no more sickness, no more sadness, no more evil, no more wickedness. That, that the work of destroying evil makes it so that everything sad might become untrue. See, church, in a way, Jesus was sent into this world to make everything sad untrue for you and for me. To fulfill all righteousness. And so God made Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God and for everything sad to become untrue. But Jesus' baptism does more than show us that we have a perfect representative of faithfulness and righteousness in him. See, and this is the part that I think uh, kind of ties it all together for us that can encourage us and ignite a passion in us to, come, to become more and better followers of Jesus. See, his baptism reveals the relationship of love that God sent Jesus to invite us into. Right? God sent his son on a mission not just to save us from our sin, but to invite us 
into this love that has eternally existed in the Godhead, the Trinity, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God wants you and me to be partakers of that loving relationship together. And we see this, we see this invitation in Jesus' baptism. One of the th things that we as a church believe is, is that God created all things, right? And, and as Heidi was talking this morning, it wasn't just God the Father there, but also the Son was there from the Gospel of John. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, right? But not just that, we also know in Genesis that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so we believe that the work of creation was the work where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were there together in the creation of all things. But here's something I want us to consider. Though the work of creation was the work of the Trinity, so isn't the work of redemption. See, here in Mark's gospel, we're, we're similarly taught that the work of redemption and making everything sad and true is a work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look again at Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 with me. Uh, here's when John actually baptizes Jesus. And when he came up out of the water, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Listen, church, I know we like to sometimes, and in some texts, it, it, it's helpful for us to put our own name in there, right? Almost as if God's speaking directly to us. But this, this is a moment where God is speaking directly to the son. And we're, we're just, we get the joy of God looking in on this relationship. God the Father looks upon his son and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, as Jesus comes up out of the water, as Jesus, the, the son of God, comes up out of the water, the Father speaks these words of love over to him in, in being this, this, this voice of good pleasure while the Spirit descends upon him, anointing him, with a purpose for which the Father has sent him, right? This is beautifully orchestrated moment, this relational moment where we get a glimpse of the love of God at work in the Godhead for all eternity, right? Jesus always existed with the Father. The Spirit always existed with the Father. And so this love that is between them has always existed in the Godhead. Now, there are a lot of illustrations we try to use to depict the relationship within the Trinity, right? We, we use the different phases of water, right? There's, there's frozen, there's ice, there's gas, there's, there's liquid, right? And somehow like that, that depicts like these three phases in one. Three persons in one being is, uh, of the Godhead. Or, or maybe it's an egg, right? You got the shell, the yolk, and the egg white, and, and they kind of depict they're all part of one egg, but they're these different parts that, that make it up. But whatever illustration you might like lean on, what, what I want us to, to think about is father and son is a much better relationship to, to lean into to kind of get a glimpse of what's happening, who the Trinity is and who God is. Because the, the first and second person of the Trinity depict a relationship of love that defines God at his very best, right? 
In other words, the three parts to an egg or the phase of, of water, uh, H2O, don't depict the character of God, particularly the character of God's love. They, they don't show us anything about God. They, they, they show us like the, the nature of how the Trinity might work, but they don't show us the personality of God, the character that, that exists within him. I think it's easy for us to say God is love, but, but do we truly know what that means? Do we understand who this God of love is? See, for God to love, for God to be love, there needed to be something other, someone other for him to love. There always had to be another that has eternally existed alongside the Father, just as the Son and the Spirit have. Here, here's what I think this tells us. God didn't create this world so that he would have others that, he could, that, that could love him, right? Or, or, or as if he needed others to be there so that he could love others, right? That's not why God, God didn't create us so he could love us. God created us, God created this world to share his love, to give it away. Because in the Trinity, he's always giving love. The Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Son or to the Father. God's love is always being given throughout this Trinitarian God. And so when he creates the world, he didn't create it so that, that, that he had, a, had an object that he could go and love. He created it so he could share the love that was eternally existent in him with the world. God wants to radiate his love to his creation like heat from a fire. But, but just like everything else, our ability to receive that love has been destroyed by sin, right? Which is why the Father sends the Son to make everything sad untrue. The, the Father sent the Son to fix what was broken that we might know and experience the love of God. Pause for a moment. Do you believe that God wants you to know and embrace and, and, and embody and live in the love that he that exudes from his very being? There, there's a great book. If you ever want a book that kind of depicts Christianity well. It's a book by Michael Reeves called Delighting in the Trinity. And he says this in the book. He says, this is why the Son goes out from the Father in both creation and salvation, that the love of the Father for the Son might be shared. God is a giving God. God is a generous God. And what God wants to give is his love, the very core of his being. Consider Jesus' prayer for us in John 17, verses 24 to 25. Jesus prays this. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, the radiation of my character that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. There's that eternally existent love. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And maybe we, we want to put it in the context of a verse that many of us were taught to memorize when we were younger. For God so loved the world 
and wanted to share his eternally existing love with the world that he sent his son Jesus so that we too might know God's love. One more quote for for us from Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. The Trinity is to be played out in each one of us, he says. Or putting it in another way, each one of us has got to enter into that pattern to take his place in the dance, to take our place in that space between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the love that's being shared between them. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize of which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They're a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you'll remain dry. Lewis goes on, he says, Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing in a life which has always existed, consisting of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and now includes you and I. We too get to become sons and daughters of God, children of God. See, when, when, when John baptizes Jesus by the Jordan River, we're given this beautiful look into the reality of this relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And this is a relationship that's been going on for all eternity. What does the Father say? You are my beloved Son. Not you, Dan. You, Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You are my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. That's the love of the Father for the Son. That's the love that you and I are invited into because we have a faithful representative, finally, who will go before us and invite us to follow with him in fulfilling all righteousness. See, church, following Jesus isn't defined by how well you obey Jesus. That's moralism, right? If your, if your confidence in your Christianity depends on, on how well you're obeying Jesus, you got things backwards in your relationship. Our willingness and desire to obey Jesus should flow out of an abundance of our love for God, not an obligation. And, and so it's about pursuing and pressing on toward Jesus more passionately, being close to the source of the heat, getting into the water, saying, this is where I want to be. It's trusting God to do that work of formation and, and take him at his word. So I imagine there are a lot of us this morning who, who want the happiness we were made for and, and to bask in, in the glow of God's love. Look at these verses. Understand who's being revealed to us. May that cultivate in us a heart of worship that, we, that, that God sent his son 
to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, to be that perfect representative so that we might be invited into the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is so much insecurity and fear and worry that we face in this world. But how much strength can we, can, can we bask in when we feel secure in knowing our lives are rooted and grounded in the life of the one who is a perfect representative, a faithful representative of mankind. Where Adam failed, where Moses failed, where David failed, where Israel failed, where all the judges failed, all the kings failed, Jesus was successful. This is the one we worship. This is the one we follow. This is the one we press on after. Church, let's do that. Let's make it a determination of our heart. And don't get sidetracked when you get discouraged and fail to be faithful. Because guess what? That's why we needed Jesus to come. Because we're not faithful people. But praise God, he is. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, uh, we thank you that first and foremost that you are love, that you have always ever been love, and Lord, that you desire us to share with you in that love, to be a part of that kingdom, the, the family of God, and you cared so much about that that you sent Jesus to be our faithful representative. Lord, I, I pray that we would just accept that. That we would accept that by faith. And that in accepting that by faith, we wouldn't feel the obligation to go out and, 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 and obey you and try and prove our righteousness, but that we would rest secure in the place uh, that knowledge that Jesus is our righteousness. And so to feel the warmth of your love, to feel the, 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 the wetness of your love. Father, we love you. And Lord, I pray on behalf of our, uh, our community of faith here that your spirit would have his way in us and among us. Grow our hearts as followers of Jesus. May we may we cast that idea of following being a weakness far away from us and accept your invitation to follow you as an, ex as an invitation to share with you to, on this joint venture of seeing your kingdom grow and expand as more and more learn to trust Jesus, to trust him as the perfect and faithful representative who's here to fulfill all righteousness. Father, we thank you and praise you. May our hearts expand in worship of you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.